private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Kia ora Good to see everybody here. Um, yeah, like Caleb said, I get the great uh, privilege of being able to bring a bit of a conclusion to the collab series that we've been doing here at church. So we've been working through the book of Philippians um, since right after Easter. So it's been a good chunk of time we spent working through these verses. So I'm really excited about looking that, at that today. Um, but uh, just a question. Anybody here big readers? Anybody like reading? None? A few? Hey, somebody does. Awesome. Uh, my family were really big readers. Um, my mom especially just tears through like books like nobody's businesses, like just works through them real quick. And so one of the things she always made sure to do with us and the family is like whether by sheer like hoping to get us to like it or by force of will, she made sure that all of us in the family really loved reading books as well. So our family had this weird dynamic often during like holidays or vacations or we'd go to a cabin or the lake or something. We'd all have our own books and you'd often find days where in the middle of the day, all of us are in pretty much the same room, but nobody's talking because we're all just sitting there reading our books, being like social but antisocial at the same time. It's really wonderful. But during these, these, uh, these vacations, we began to notice a habit that my mother had of doing that frustrated me and my dad like nobody's business. Well, it's probably more me than my dad, but I don't want to be alone here. So basically what my mom would do is when she's reading through these books, right? She'd read through and she'd maybe get through like the first few chapters, get like 50 pages in. And if she's at a book where she wasn't like immediately grabbed by it or really excited, she'd often sit there and be like, hmm, I'm unsure if I should keep reading or whether I like it or not. And then she did something that I thought was horrible. She'd grab the book and she'd flip right to the end and she'd go to the last like two or three chapters and she would read those, right? Anybody else do this? Anybody? You all need Jesus because it is a, it's a terrible thing because for her, she thought if I make it to the end and I like the ending, then I might go back and actually read the whole thing. But for me, I was like, no, you, it's a journey. Like you have to walk through there. You can't just, can't go to the good bits and only read those. It's like getting a muffin and only eating the top and leaving like the boring bottom bit for no, everybody else. Like you, there's an order and a process. But the reason she always said this was because she's like, look, Colin, the ending is the most important part. It's where everything comes together in a novel you've been building up. All the plot points have been coming together and it's in the ending that they all he come together in this huge climax, or if it's in a nonfiction book or an academic essay, it's in the conclusion that you'll often have the author brings together all the thoughts, all the ideas he's put forward, and in the conclusion he presents it as, hey, this is the most important thing you need to know. Or in a letter, if you write a letter or an email to someone, usually the last thing that you have in the letter is the thing you want ringing in their ears once they finish reading it. It's the thing you want them to keep thinking about over and over and over again at the end. And so what we have today is we're coming to the end of Philippians and we're coming to Paul's conclusion. And so it's so important for us to stop and take note because this is after Paul has said all kinds of amazing things. Like it'd be, I wish, almost wish we could have spent the whole Sunday going through all the highlights. There have been some amazing passages, eh? of what Christ has done. I mean, even just that Christ hymn where it talks about Jesus being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be had. So he made himself low in the image of the servant, took on humanity and humbled himself even to death 
upon a cross. And so God exalted him into the highest place. Like, oh, we could have spent a month there. It's such, there have been so many good parts of this book. But here in the conclusion, Paul brings together all these threads. And he presents this last bit, the most important part that he wants the Philippians to be remembering once this letter is finished being read to them. And that's what we're looking at today. So what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be spending quite a bit of time just walking through the scripture together. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to pull them out or grab your phones. You can look at the verses there. If not, if you don't have those, we'll have it up on the screen. But it's often quite nice to look through it in your own book or in your own Bible. But we're going to, we're going to be spending a lot of time working through that. So, so we come to Philippians 4, chapter 10. Paul has said all kinds of things to all kinds of different people. He's led them through talking about how to find uni, unity in the midst of adversity, how to reconcile relationships when people are strong-willed, how to bring everything to God by prayer and petition, and then through that prayer we will find peace. And he's brought all these thoughts, and he comes together finishing with the thing that started this whole thing off. Now, you'd have to think back quite a ways, but if you think back to the beginning of the Collab series, this whole letter, everything was sparked because Paul was in jail. And the Philippians, a church that really, really loved him in Philippi, had sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, all the way with some, with some money, with some food, with some clothes, so that Paul would not be alone or naked in prison. And it's this, this gift that causes Paul to get like overjoyed and Paul writes this letter in response. So after Paul has said all these things, encouraged him in all these ways, he comes back to the very thing that spurred on this whole letter. And he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So he's saying, I'm just rejoicing so greatly at this great gift of generosity that you have shown me. But then he does something really interesting. He says, but I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he's doing this great opening line to finish it off and says, look, I'm so glad you guys are able to show your concern to me, but I didn't need it in the first place. Which is kind of like a, he does a quick U-turn, right? Because it's what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to push away from this idea that it was just about the finances. He was so thankful for their gift, but he wants to start in saying, look, this gift and this donation was so wonderful, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all. And he does this huge U-turn so that the Philippians know that he didn't need the money. And he goes on to say, look, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so he does this huge U-turn and then pushes and says, no, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this has got to be arguably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? How many of you guys know this verse? Yeah? How many of you guys have seen this verse like in a plaque or in a photo or on a poster somewhere, eh? This, so I grew up in a Christian uh, school. My, my folks were missionaries and pastors. So I spent a lot of time in, in Christian circles. And this verse, for me, I've seen it everywhere. Like it was the, the be-all, end-all verse. And it's up on, when I was at school, it was on the walls of my school. You would have like bracelets made with Philippians 4.13. So you can remember, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it would be everywhere, right? And so when you read this verse, it almost is a verse that almost... Uh, 
talks about the amazing self-sufficiency we have, like how, how much we can achieve when God's behind us, how many cool things we can do when God's with us. And which is cool. That's great when you're thinking about Bible things. Like, yeah, I'm going to preach and God can help me. Or, yeah, I'm going to do worship and God can help me. Or, yeah, I'm going to do this and God can help me. But to be honest, I think that verse has taken on a bit of a life of its own. Well, at least I, I, I got this verse to say whatever I wanted it to for me. So, like, for example, you would want to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of the times I most often prayed that was uh, in school, that would be sitting up on the wall and it'd be time, it'd be exam season. And I blatantly hadn't studied or prepared nearly as well as I should have for any of my tests. And the paper comes down and you have this panic attack. But then you look at the wall and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here comes that A. Or um, often it would be at like sports games, right? So you're down. There'd be a halftime break. The coach would get us together. And he'd be like, look, guys, it's all right. We can do it. We can come from behind. Remember, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, which means you can win because Jesus is going to help you do it, right? Or, um, but the thing is, when you take that verse, you can begin to then apply it to whatever you want. Like, say you've had 15 tacos and there's one left on the plate and you're like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, like, it's one of those verses that if we take it away from its context, which we so easily have, when we think of it, it becomes a verse that enables us to do what we want to do. It's a verse about self-sufficiency, a verse about our ability, our verse about us being able to move forward. That's how it's often understood. But in the context, when we look at what Paul's talking about, he's saying pretty much the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite of that. While this verse is often an idea for us to be self-sufficient, I'm independent, I'm strong, I can do it because Jesus is going to help me do it. I'm going to do it. Paul's actually saying, look, I'm kind of at the mercy of fate. I've been rich. I've been poor, I've had a lot, I've had a little, but what I know is that in any of these circumstances, I can be and have peace because Christ is with me. Notice how it's a change from that. It's not a statement of self-dependence or independence. It's a statement of utter dependence upon Christ who will supply and cover him in whatever he needs. It's this idea of radical contentment. And I think it's something that we need to pause and listen to sometimes. Oh, that we would know contentment a little bit more, eh? In a world of, in our social media world where every Facebook like and post is quantified, you can see exactly how many people you've interacted with. We have this drive to keep having more, to boost our profile. Let's put the camera angle on this way. We'll get the witty quote put this way so that we can get as many followers as we possibly can. In a world where we're constantly looking for that next promotion, that next step up, that next thing we can do so that we can be at the top of our field. In a world where the housing prices are rising really quickly and there's this desperate need, this greed, we need a house, we need to get on the property ladder, we need to be able to move up, I need to get this mortgage. If we're at this place, I need to renovate my house so that the neighbors can see that we're moving up. This desire, this move, 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 there's this desire for more, more, more within us. You could even argue that our entire economy is based on a lack of contentment as entire businesses are built up to stimulate the desire and need within us to go and purchase and consume. And our joy is not complete. Our life is not satisfied until we have that next thing, that next thing, that next thing. And the market is so good at always just moving the line back each time. It doesn't matter what you get. If you got that next thing, well, happiness is one step 
further. Our world does not know contentment, particularly not a contentment that looks like Paul's describing here. See, what Paul says is that, no, no, no. There are all kinds of things. There are times that we may have plenty. We may be in the house that we want. We may be in the job that we want. And there we will be content, but it's not because of those things. Because there are also times that are going to come when we are going to be in need. The economy is going to crash. All of our finances are going to bottom out, and we're going to be in desperate need. In both of those situations, we are going to be content. Because we know that what we have in Christ is more valuable than anything we can have around us. See, what you see Paul beginning to do is develop this relationship and this framework. Hey, this happened first service too. Hey, that went the wrong direction. Um, Ah, sweet. Hey, so what you see Paul beginning to do is he's developing this framework. The Philippians have given him a gift. They've given him a financial donation. And he says, look, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful to God, but I'm not so thankful just about the money that you sent. Because you need to understand that all of us need to understand that what we need truly comes from God and God alone. And that our satisfaction, our self-worth, our identity comes from being in relationship with him and knowing that he supplies all of our needs. And because of that, I can be content. I can bear all things through him who gives me strength because I know that he is good. So Paul says that. But then immediately, so he said, hey, thanks for your gift, but I'm not stoked about the money. But then he jumps back in again. And he says, but it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Again, not... Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So Paul then turns back and again says, look, I'm so stoked about what you have done And he calls back the history. And Philippians really do have this unique history in Paul's life. You know, Paul worked with lots of other churches. He was in Ephesus. He was in Antioch. He was in Thessalonica. He was in Corinth. All these other churches that he helped start and plant. But from all of them, he never took any money. Particularly when you read through Corinthians, part like huge chunks of the Corinthian letters are devoted to him saying, I'm not going to take your money and I'm never going to touch your money because you have so many bad ideas around money that if I took it, you would somehow think that you now own the gospel, that you now control the spread of the gospel in the world, that now I'm somehow beholden to you as a church. So Paul says, I would not touch your money over my life. But with the Philippians, you see something different. And this is what you see Paul rejoicing in over and over again. Paul was happy to take from the Philippians because he knew that their gift was here, but it represented something deeper. It represented a commitment of love and partnership in the gospel with no strings attached. 
The Philippians didn't assume that now because they'd given money to Paul that Paul was now more beholden to them as a church and he would come there more regularly. No, it wasn't about that at all. They deeply loved him and they loved the gospel, so they sent finances and did what they could. And what's even more remarkable is that when you learn about the Philippians, and Paul talks about this in Corinthians, they often gave not out of their uh, generous coffers, they gave out of their need. They were a small, persecuted minority church in this strong Roman colony, and their giving was a financial sacrifice to them. And sending Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus literally risked his life to traverse the nation of Rome in order to get to the very center, in order to give Paul this money. He nearly died from sickness throughout the whole process, just so that this people could show their love and their commitment to them, to Paul. And it's just so remarkable that it is the sacrificial nature of giving. And it's, again, something I think we can be wonderfully reminded of. Um, I, uh, as part of my training to be a pastor for the last three years before I came here, I was up in Auckland doing uh, ministry training at Cary Baptist Bible College. And part of the curriculum that they lead us through, which makes sense, is they go through a really strong process of teaching you about self-care and setting good boundaries. Because historically, pastors have a really high rate of burnout. Um, pastors end up overcommitting themselves, uh, taking on the emotional weight and responsibility for their entire congregation, and they end up giving, 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 and many of them within five to seven years end up burning out, have to take a year, maybe two years off, and a large proportion of them never end up back in ministry because they end up so burnt out. So the, the college rightly spends a lot of time talking to pastors about how to set up good boundaries, how to understand when to say no, how to not take on too much emotional baggage of other people. And that's really good. So there's a really great culture of self-care that they try to teach us. And that's really wonderful, and it's so important. But when you read passages like this in Philippians, and you read about this church, to me, I'm always struck by the nature that the giving that was most beautiful and most marked with the gospel of Jesus Christ often came at great cost. And it came at great cost to themselves, it came at a great risk to their own security, to their own financial stability, to the very lives as they wanted to show love to their neighbor. It cost them something. And how much do we forget that in our societies? I mean, we, we, most of us would live in nice homes with nice big fences that we hardly even have to see our neighbors usually. We've got really good boundary lines around which we set up that we say, oh, maybe I'll help you, but I was planning on going to the movies that day. Or maybe I can talk to this person, but I'd really like to get home and watch this TV show. It's really easy for us to set up our comfortable life of boundaries, isn't it? It's really natural. I do it all the time. And this verse speaks to us and tears us out and shakes us and makes us remember that sometimes to love is costly. Sometimes to care is dangerous. Sometimes when you look after someone, you'll invite someone into your home, you'll look after them, you'll pour love into them, you'll try and gather them, you'll introduce them to your family, you'll provide for their finances, you'll help them set their way on their way forward, you'll do everything you can for them, and this person might never change. In fact, they might turn around and say, you never helped me, and they'll punch you in the face and walk away. That's a reality of sacrificial love. It's a risk that we all bear but we have to remember that the very nature of Jesus Christ, how much did he give in order to redeem and restore us? How much did he sacrifice in order that we might come together and come before the Father made whole? Sometimes love is costly. 
And what Paul begins to do is he builds this framework up. Talks about the importance of our relationship with God, but then he talks about the importance of our relationship with one another. And that the gospel is shown through acts of sacrificial love for one another. Gifts that often cost us something. Our time, our money, our energy, our reputation, our resources. The call of the gospel to love our neighbors will cost us. But it's in that giving that we understand the love of God so much more beautiful than just holding on to our own things. So then, Paul finishes by moving forward. And he finishes with these small last few lines. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. See, it's a wonderful way for Paul to finish this letter. Because throughout the story of this, Paul has received so much from the Philippians. They have given to him time and time again. They sent Epaphroditus to go and look after them. Paul has been at the receiving end of so much of their grace and their goodness, but Paul doesn't leave it there. Because it's not just a one direction flow of giving and of service. It's not all flowing from one place. Paul understands that though they have given so much to him, Paul knows that God will give them even more that they are held in the hands of Jesus and God will meet all of their needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, re- this is important for a reason because a lot of us will, will have people in our lives that we, we love deeply, that we have given a lot of support to, that we have looked after at great cost to ourselves, that we have done over and above and beyond, and we care for this person, and we feel a sense of responsibility and a a beholdenness to them, that we want to make sure that they get set up right. we got to make sure that they're taken care of. We have this responsibility that we feel, but when we become responsible for that person over and over again, it's our job to make sure that they're okay. It's our job to make sure that they're whole. It's our job to make sure that they have enough that they need. It's our job to be there when they need to talk. It's our job to do this for them. When that becomes our whole framework, who becomes the savior in that person's life? We do. But Paul understands that great gospel relationships has us serving one another, but understands that at the end of the day, they have their own relationship with God that will nurture and sustain them. See, when Paul left them in Philippi, he did not leave them as orphans. He didn't leave them alone at the winds of fate to see maybe they might survive. See, Paul knows that the spirit of God who brought Jesus back from the dead is looking out for them, is caring for them, is leading them into all truth. How wonderful is that for us to know, for those of us whom we love, who we feel such a burden and a responsibility for, to know that God cares for them more than we ever could. To know that God holds them in in his hands and he is watching out for them in ways that we don't even know or understand yet. That God is in control. And it's through this matrix of relationships, through this three-way relating of understanding that we, you and I, have our own sufficiency and understanding in our relationship with Christ, and he provides all of our needs. Just as you have your own relationship with Jesus, and he provides all of your needs, and together we will show sacrificial love to one another. And as these three relationships work out, 
Paul says, you see the gospel. You see the fruit of the gospel. He says it's like a fragrant offering, a, a smell of incense that rises and everyone will suddenly know it. It is pleasing to God. These relationships all working in unison, Christ, you and me, together we show the gospel to the world. And to use language from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he says that when we do this, we shine like stars in the universe. Our relationships burn bright and people can see the gospel through the way that we interact. It becomes a bright symbol of hope and freedom to so many. We shine like stars in the universe. Now there's an issue with this phrase and this understanding. Is, uh, so some of you in here today may not be Christians or you may just be sussing this whole thing out and church may be quite weird to you. But for a lot of us here, uh, we spend a lot of our time in church culture, eh? We come to church every Sunday. We probably have a home group that we're a part of. And we might serve in one of the areas of the church. And a lot of our friends will be Christians. A lot of people that we know at school will be Christians. And we live in this Christian environment. And so we hear Paul's phrase about shining like stars in the universe. And in a room filled with light like this, we assume that our light's going to be like this. And suddenly the whole world's going to be changed. But it doesn't seem that powerful because we're, we're in this kind of light all the time right? We become over familiar with it, over used to it. And we suddenly think that what God is doing in us and the little things that we do have no significance because, I mean, look, this really doesn't add that much light. But I wonder, can you guys drop the house lights for us for a second? You notice the difference this now has. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of a world that doesn't know who Jesus is, in the midst of a, a society that doesn't know the gospel or the fruits of the gospel, these lights begin to shine so much brighter. And then when we all do that, it begins to change the shape of our environment. Now, I wonder if all of you guys, if you have phones in your pockets, can you pull them out? And uh, if you have a flashlight app, can you turn on your lights? Turn on your lights. Everybody, it's got to be one of the rare churches in church where everyone's going to tell you to pull out your phone and play with it. But pull out your phone and play with it. And get all your lights and shine them. There you go. I wonder if we, can we drop the washers as well? Um, now, take a moment and look around the room. This is what Paul is talking about. He says that for so many of us in, this, in our world that don't know the gospel. They don't know the way that we relate to one another. They don't understand all the nuances and the hope and the freedom that we have of the gospel. When they see us loving one another sacrificially and understanding that we have peace and contentment in the gospel, it becomes like sh stars shining in the universe. And look at how this room is transformed. Every single one of your small groups is like one of these lights in your neighborhoods. Every time you engage in love for your neighbor, one of these lights shines off and they get to see it. They get to understand the light of the gospel. This is the power that we have within us. This room looks different. You can now see all the details of the lights and the ceiling and the bars. And you can see the faces of the people next to you because of the light that we have shining within us. This is the great power of the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking and why he's so overjoyed and he rejoices and says, look, when you love one another, this will shine like stars in the world that we live in. And our relationships, as we do the basics with one another over and over and over again, 
our neighbors, our communities, and our town will see and know the gospel because they will see the light reflecting on us. And we will shine like stars in Toranga. Let's stand as we pray. Lord Jesus, God, we desperately want to be different. Your gospel presents such a different way of being, a different world, a different way of relating to one another. But God, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the culture of our day, in the way that society relates to itself. God, we, we lose sense of the contentment we can find in you, Jesus. And we set our eyes on physical things that we think will help us to feel fulfilled or emotional milestones that we think we need in order to be all that we can be. God, help us to turn our eyes to you, Jesus, and realize that with you, we are enough and we have enough, and that you supply all of our needs. Let us be a community that shines as we are marked by peace and contentment rather than greed and desire. Lord, in our love for one another, help us to love sacrificially in the way that the Philippians took from what they had, and even though they didn't have much, they gave, and they sent people out and risked themselves. God, help us to step outside of our comfort zones, out of our fences, out of our modes that we feel good in. Help us to step outside because there are people around us who need your love. Help us to step forward and show your love to them. But Lord, help us to understand that at the end of the day, we are not the Savior. We are not everyone's last great hope but you yourself are. Lord, would you do what we cannot do? Would you care for the people we don't know yet in the, in the places we too feel too small or too insignificant with our family members who struggle with mental health or, or disease or sickness or, or suicidal thoughts in the ways we feel so small and insignificant? Jesus, would you be Lord and Savior? Would you be healer in a way that we cannot be? We open up our hands and say we are but small, finite people trusting in an infinite God. Lord, make us into a church of people that shines your gospel light into our communities and that all men, women, and children will be drawn to your light. We worship you.